It is good to be in L.A. So you can get your face in the camera. You know, I figured if I was going to see something 20 or 25 times, I ought to know more about it. You're the best son money can buy. It's a monkey. Well, sure, it's a monkey. But aside from that, it's a vivid, wonderful film. Entertainment is part of what makes us exceptional. I'm not, I'm not criticizing Hollywood. Without Derek Zoolander, male modeling wouldn't be what it is today. I, I mean, I have to say, when I, when I heard that, like, people actually watch this show, I was, I was actually pretty surprised. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 12th episode of Watching Mates. I'm this week's host, Michael Levito, and I'm joined, as always, by Leapin Lars Emerson. <laughs> you couldn't have gone with, like, Lascivious or something? Uh, lascivious is bad. <laughs> yeah, I know, but it beats Leapin. Good to be here, I, Mike. It was the first adjective that I... Well, it's not really an adjective, it's more of a verb that I could think of. Thanks for joining me, though. Anyway, uh, this is our podcast in which we explore trends in film and cinema under each post-war president. As we progress from episode to episode, Lars and I each choose a film to capture the zeitgeist of that administration on the silver screen. In this episode, we'll be talking about America's 44th president, Barack Hussein Obama II. Obama had perhaps one of the fastest ascendancies to the presidency in American history, going from Illinois state senator to U.S. senator to commander-in-chief all in the span of 11 years. Elected in 2008 as the country's first African-American president, Obama inherited an economy in recession and multiple wars in the Middle East from his predecessor, George W. Bush, and acted as something of a beacon of hope for many voters. And he even won the Nobel Peace Prize nine months after being elected for extraordinary efforts to strengthen international diplomacy and cooperation between peoples. Obama signed the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare, in an attempt to provide Americans with universal health care. The Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Protection Act and two major economic stimulus bills, as well as the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. He also increased troop levels in Afghanistan, ended American military involvement in Iraq, helped overthrow Libyan dictator Muammar Gaddafi, oversaw the assassination of Osama bin Laden, and sought to normalize relations with Cuba, and he also signed the Paris Climate Agreement. Obama, of course, faced resistance to his policies on multiple fronts. On the domestic side, there was the anti-tax, anti-Obamacare Tea Party movement, and so-called birthers who didn't believe he was a natural-born citizen, and of course overseas he had to contend with the rise of ISIS. Despite these challenges, Obama's approval ratings remained relatively high, although they did get low at some points, and his two decisive electoral victories confirmed his status as a once-in-a-generation campaigner. Obama would remain a political and pop culture fixture even after the end of his presidency, becoming an outspoken critic of his successor Donald Trump, as well as signing a Netflix production deal and launching a podcast with Bruce Springsteen. Lars, what do you think of Obama's legacy? We're in an exciting episode, right? Because I, I think of Obama as the president we kind of came of political age under, Mike. Is that fair to say? I think it is. Yeah, it's like I, these are the first elections that I remember actively being involved in and participating participating in. Um, I think Obama's legacy uh, is overrated. I, I, I think... I, I I think I've always kind of struggled with Obama from a policy standpoint. Um, and I realize a lot that what happened, kind of like you said, is not so much his fault. Uh, you know, obviously there was a very racist backlash to him and the Republicans. I mean, the, the Tea Party movement and the whole Bertha thing is like really messed up. And you literally had you know the leaders in the House and Senate saying, we are going to do everything we can to stop anything he ever wants to do. And we're going to make him a one term president. Like there was clearly no goodwill. Mm -hmm. um and no good faith 
However, Barack Obama also deported more people in American history than anyone else. He surged troops in Afghanistan. And <laughs> I, I, for what purpose, <laughs> I think is, yeah. is, is doubtful. Um, I mean, the last six years of his administration are honestly just stopping Republicans, which I get uh, why that kind of mattered. But it's it's very hard to see how you get Donald Trump without getting Barack Obama, which is not to blame Obama, but you can see why his legacy is a little complicated. Yeah, so kind of fair to say. I think so. And I think it's definitely something we'll touch on as we discuss the movies that we picked. Yeah, I, I would agree. I, I think in a lot of ways, it's funny when I had to uh, write this write up, it, it was kind of hard to really, you know, I feel like Reagan, you can like nutshell pretty well. Like a lot of these presidents, you can sort of like talk about what happened during their time pretty succinctly. And maybe it's because, you know, Obama's served so recently that it's hard to do that with him. But yeah, I, it, it's funny. It's he, uh, I think, broke a lot of people's brains. <laughs> I think actually on both sides of the aisle, to be to be quite frank. And again, I think we'll talk about more. You know, there are people who will insist that Obama was basically a communist and hated America and all this stuff. I don't. That's not true. <laughs> the, the guy that's who not, you know bailed out the banks and whatnot. Yeah, it's, a total commie. Yeah, it's, it's basically not true. But you know, just the fact that he was like young and black, I think, just really triggered a lot of uh, people. And, but, you know, he, he certainly has his shortcomings. I mean, you mentioned deporting a lot of people. He also oversaw the expansion of drone warfare and right. uh, dropped a lot of bombs on sometimes deserving people and sometimes undeserving people in the Middle right. East and uh, was perhaps not quite the agent of change that many people had hoped. But again, I think that's something we'll, we'll unpack more as we talk about our movies. I just because we talked about it, I want to say last episode with Bush is you uh, the C-SPAN poll of like presidents and where they rank. It's like this particular cycle. Obama got like 10th or 11th place, which is a little ridiculous to me. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I don't see I, I struggle with Democrats who defend Biden's decision to withdraw from Afghanistan at all costs, which he is now in the process of doing and has done as we record this episode. Uh, and also like Barack Obama is the greatest president in the post-war era. It's like I, I struggle how you can mesh those two things, because if you agree with Biden, it means you think Obama made a bigger mistake than Trump. <laughs> yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. I, I, I don't know. And Democrats who, you know, praise immigrants, but are not willing to they're willing to look the other way on the Obama administration's policies which may not have been as publicly evil as the Trump administration's policies, but in terms of raw numbers, they are worse. Yeah. And that's, I think that's another thing that's really important is that he was a celebrity president. And I don't say that necessarily as a criticism so much as just like a fact, right? Like he dominated pop culture, you know, starting with his campaign to run and then eventually through his first term, really all of it in a way that I don't think any president has before or at least not in my lifetime. Granted, you know, I was, what, 14 when he was elected. So, you know, I had only really experienced so many presidents, but still. And he, he became, in, in some ways, like a rock star to a lot of people. And and I think that tends to overshadow the actual substantive policy decisions he had to make, for good or for ill. Anyway, yeah. Uh, let, let, let's let's talk about some movies, Lars. Well, we will start with yours, which actually came out in 2008, the year that Obama was elected. 
that it most certainly did. So the movie I picked for Obama is, as you said, 2008's Gran Torino. Gran Torino was directed by one Clint Eastwood, who, as we'll discuss, played a prominent role in the Obama presidency <laughs> in a few years. Gran Torino stars Clint Eastwood, uh, Christopher Carley, Scott Eastwood, B. Vang, Annie Hare, uh, Brian Haley. It tells the story of Walt Kowalski, who has been uh, recently widowed. His wife is dead. And he is... Uh, a cantankerous, uh, racist, unhappy, old uh, Korean War veteran. He uh, has these neighbors who who are Asian. Who, They're Hmong. Uh, who he is uh, contemptuous towards. Uh, but basically his prized possession is this Gran Torino from 1972 that he keeps in his garage. And that's like the thing he cares about. And he's, he has these like annoying sons who want him to move into a home. But it eventually ends up telling a story of how Clint Eastwood and the son of his neighbors, whose name is Tao, who tries to steal his car, um, they come together to try and, you know, kind of have this relationship over the course of the movie. What what, uh, what did you think of Gran Torino? I, I know we've both seen it before. Yeah, it was the first time I'd seen it in a while, though. It's good. It's definitely uh, greater than the sum of its parts. I think some of the acting in this is very bad. <laughs> I think there's, it strikes, I feel like a lot of actors in this are probably like non-actors. Yeah. Which is fine but you know I, sometimes they just couldn't really carry the emotional weight but it's good I, it's i i think it is pretty like the beginning like like when i was like on this rewatch i was like oh man like there's scenes where he's like literally just like grumbling to himself like what's going on and i'm like <laughs> oh this is like clearly like the point where he's supposed to be like over the top curmudgeonly and like just kind of over the co- over the top just like you know, just just not supposed to be the guy you want to hang out with, but it's it's like effective. Even though I think you could like probably nitpick with a lot of problems with it, and maybe some aspects of it haven't aged well. I think, like I said, it ultimately comes through as a good movie. Yes, I, I agree. You know, it's fairly rewatchable. I've seen it a few times now, but it it's I, I agree there are some problematic aspects, but I think the ultimate message of this, as I'm sure we'll unpack, is actually very positive. Yeah, it is yeah. for our listeners who hear me describe like a grumpy old racist white guy um, who, you know, lives in the Midwest in Michigan, you're, you're going to assume this guy is like a Trump voter, right? By the end of this movie, I think I would pretty strongly disagree with you. I mean, but, you know, well, I mean, he, not to spoil anything, but he does, he would die before he would get the chance. Well, yes. <laughs> I, I guess we'll just get there now. Yes. Yeah. So, so the reason I picked Gran Torino eventually is that it, it kind of tells the story of this, certainly what Obama saw as a reality, but I think has ultimately kind of become a fantasy of this guy, you know, like we said, the racist old Midwestern white guy who, you know, he hates the government, he doesn't trust institutions, he's sad his wife is dead, he he always thinks back to like when America was better, right? But he learns to accept his his neighbors who don't look like him and in accepting each other, they both make America better by working together and like helping their community. Right. That, that is the America, that is the Obama vision for America. It has maybe only played out in this movie. Like I think Obama intended, but that's the vision, right? Yeah. Well, it's, it's this, this, this is the, um, I forget. It's the, the one line that always stands out to me from like the address he gave the 2004 DNC, like, 
this is the um, we coach little league in the blue states and we have gay friends in the red states movie, right? It is right. the um, there is no red or blue America sort of bridging the gap thing. What what it really reminded me of is so in one of my classes in my first semester of grad school, we had a political columnist slash reporter as a guest speaker, and he was saying that he's covered every presidential election since 1980. And he was saying that um, he always tries to find one sort of like one vote, like a representative voter for each election, right? Who tells the story of why the election went the way it did. And he said for 2008, it was this guy in Kentucky who was talking to him and he said to him, you know, my daddy would turn over in his grave if he knew that I voted for a black man, except he didn't use the word black man. (laughs) So, I feel like that's that's like Clint Eastwood's character in this movie in a way, right? Yeah. It is a set-in-his-ways prejudiced person, but who recognizes some beacon of hope in a younger generation and is willing to take a chance on them. He has to be cajoled a bit for that to happen, but he's still willing to take that chance. So the plot of the movie, to unpack this a little further, is so the, the Hmong people who moved next door to the cantankerous, grumpy Walt is their youngest is a boy named Tao. And he has this cousin who's in like this gang who tries to have him steal Walt's Gran Torino. And that's kind of how Walt and the boy meet for the first time. And this movie kind of turns into like uh vigilante porn at parts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is, is there's like a lot of like, get out of and like, he like whips out his big gun and whatnot. But so that happens. And then there's like this party at at Tao's house and like a barbecue and, and Clint Eastwood kind of befriends his sister. She's like very nice to him and she speaks English unlike many of her relatives. So she like accepts him. Um, and it's kind of this like kind of messed up message of like, if you accept him, he'll accept you. Right. But Tao ends up like apologizing. He commits to doing like an indentured servitude for Clint Eastwood's <laughs> character in a way. Cause that is true. He he does like tasks around the house, but Clint Eastwood doesn't actually want his help, so he has him help his neighbors, right? His Tao goes out and he helps like repair a roof for the lady who lives across the street and stuff like that. That's kind of how the plot progresses, and eventually like Clint Eastwood is like, I need to like protect this boy from this terrible gang of horrible people. And eventually it, it eventually like the the gang and Clint Eastwood they kind of have this bad interaction and then they end up like kidnapping and raping uh Tao's sister Clint Eastwood goes on this like revenge fantasy where he ends up you know getting himself killed intentionally to lock these this gang up like I said it's kind of this backwards kind of you know you accept him and he'll accept you mm-hmm. um and yeah, like it is like a vigilante thing, right? It's like a white savior <laughs> neighborhood vigilante who like whips his gun out, runs out the door and like, I mean, gets himself like killed to save his whole neighborhood, right? Yeah. Is that problematic? Yeah. But the end result is that this this kid is saved and he's able to like, you know, afford to perhaps go to school and get into a better economic situation. And the entire like neighborhood is better because, you know, you put this this kid to work exactly yeah it, it i think it's funny right i feel like it was kind of like marketed as kind of like the like if you look at the movie post right it is clint eastwood holding his rifle in front of his grand torino and i feel like it was kind of marketed as this vigilante movie 
And like, but but I also think this movie kind of like I can't really tell. I think for the most part, it thinks that is kind of ridiculous in a way, right? Like, mm. I I think that it sort of like it it, it kind of knows that it's, it, it's a little silly that this like eighty year old man is like threatening like these teenagers with guns, right? Um, but I also think it it is sort of like a reimagined. So when uh, Sue, which is Tao's Tao's sister, is, is like kidnapped and raped. What I think is interesting is like so. There's this priest who, but as a good quick aside, it's very weird to me that the priest is like never in his like priest clothes when he's like outside of the church. Which yeah. I know they don't wear him all the time, but he just looks like a regular dude. It was very confusing. Yeah. Anyway, um, and he he's telling Clint Eastwood's character, he's like, look, he's like, you know, Tao, want, I would want vengeance in in your spot. I know, like, and he's very much trying to make sure that you know they don't kill anybody and you you think while you're watching this that it is going to lead to this bloody confrontation and does but it doesn't really right it's like instead Clint Eastwood sacrifices himself and it is this sort of I think in a way you could almost look at it as like an allegory for like the proposed Obama foreign policy right (laughs) um whereas like the Bush the Bush the Bush doctrine is very vengeance based right it Mm. is you know uh, you 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 commit nine eleven. We go in and fuck your shit up, basically, right? Yeah. Um, for lack of a better phrase, you know, it's the America fuck yeah from Team America World Police um, callback. Yeah. Whereas you know a lot like a lot of critics called Obama's foreign policy, you know, leading from behind when he was first elected. There was this notion that he was apologizing for America and that he was sort of on an apology tour early on in his presidency, and. I think that, in a way, sort of sacrificing himself as he does, Clint Eastwood's character, it's like an argument for soft power, in a way, right? You know, we don't have to meet an eye for an eye. There are other ways to find justice and to make ourselves safe. Right. Well, and it's also kind of an argument for using your privilege for good, right? Mm -hmm. Clint Eastwood knows that the police are going to take his murder a lot more seriously than they are you know, the murder of someone in this gang or in this family, right? So he, by the end of the movie, that's what, he, you know, he, he knows he's kind of dying anyway, so he uses his death to help people who need it. Exactly, yeah, yeah. And I, just this, the general sense of kind of, like, community, right? I, at the beginning of the film, Clint Eastwood's character feels alienated from his community. Yeah. Um, he he he's 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 a curmudgeon. He just hides out in his house. He's not even particularly religious, right? He thinks that priests just peddle superstition. But towards the end, he 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 makes very real steps in enriching his community. And I think, in a way, tries to. There is like a weird sort of like attempt at not like post-racialism, but at sort of like an embrace of everyone's differences, which just kind of like involves like. Clint Eastwood and all of his old friends calling each other their respective racial slur. Right, right. Um, but there is an attempt to sort of like, this is not like a pro-color blindness movie, I would say, right? No, and at the end, you know, Tao uses his, you know, he's able to talk to a cop in his like native language. It, it, mm-hmm. it emphasizes that these differences actually end up making you stronger. Exactly, yeah, I think so. And 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 also just, I think, kind of like a... a um, a recognition of a common history, right? Like the Hmong are in the United States because of the Vietnam war mm. and knowing that they are also refugees and sort of have these ties to America. Like they, they themselves played a role in American history, right? They're not just sort of like foreign interlopers looking 
to steal American construction jobs or whatever, right? They are, you know, they 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 play a role in the great American pageant, if you will. Yeah, I mean, at, at the end of the day, it's it's the message is what Obama preached for eight years, and which was, you know, we we would argue now is very naive, but I think it's the right message for a president to preach in any circumstance, which is just. Everyone is American. There, there are no Republicans or Democrats. Everyone can be redeemed and everyone can come together because what unites us is stronger than what divides us. I think that would, you know, very clearly get, uh, trampled by his, uh, successor. And I mean, e- even while under him, I mean, Clint Eastwood, of course, would speak during the 2012 Republican <laughs> National Convention against Obama, despite kind of being for him in 2008. I don't actually like want to say that much about it. I just think it's an interesting, <laughs> I mean, you kind of got to talk about it. It was, I, it, it, I think it was like one, I think it's a thing most people forget about now, but like it was a, when he spoke to an empty chair at the Republican national convention, pretending that Obama was sitting in it. Yeah. Um, was like a defining image from the campaign. And I think in a way it was kind of like, symbolic i think of like the republican attempts to build up like the straw man obama in a way right that they it felt like they were really less running against the actual president than they were against sort of their preconceived notions of what he was so i think kind of like a handy metaphor in that regard Um, yeah yeah and i think you know by the end of this movie so like we've now said several times is uh clint eastwood's character walt is dead at the end of this movie, but you, you don't see him as like an Obama Trump voter. I, I, th- mm. I think you see him as someone who has learned the errors of his ways and has reformed. Yeah. He's still like pretty racist and like curmudgeonly, but like he clearly cares and is empathetic in a way that like I was saying, it's like the actual Trump voter in this movie would be like his sons, right? <laughs> who 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 feel like angry and resentful for no reason and and are just like kind of you know they they're like rich and they're doing fine but they're like separate from you know uh the diverse neighborhood that Clint Eastwood lives in yeah it, it's funny i i think you're right and I, I think what's interesting is that it's like i i think of Clint Eastwood as in a way it's like he is a we talked like last episode about how how kind of everybody hates bush now <laughs> and i feel like Clint Eastwood is, like, the example of that, right? Like, he is someone who actually served in the war. He sacrificed, and then he sort of uh, recants. He, in a way, tries... To, he doesn't He doesn't actually... Um, the point is, he doesn't actually swear off violence, right? Mm. You know, he does beat up a lot of people, but at the end, he doesn't resort to it. Whereas you get the sense that, yes, yeah, like, his kids, they're more... I mean, they're openly disdainful of the neighborhood he lives in, right? His yeah. his, his granddaughter calls it a ghetto, and right. she just wants his 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 fancy car. She's uh, awful. I hate her so much. <laughs> she um, is. It, it's funny. I don't know. It's like because this and Million Dollar Baby, they both have scenes where like a group of people walk in, and Clint Eastwood's clearly like, "These people are what's wrong with America." Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. in Million Dollar Baby, it's uh, Hillary Swank's family who like while she's in the hospital and like they are like living off for like you know fight checks and like have all this like new Disney stuff. And then like in this movie, it's, it's like the kids who like, they go to the funeral. Like what I will say is like, if you're taking your kid to your mother's funeral, make sure he's not wearing a football Jersey. Like that's pretty ridiculous. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, while we're on weird things in this movie, like, you know, cause the priest or the father, same thing. 
right? Yes. 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 Is he like goes to the cops like when he figures out that Clint Eastwood is going to, you know, enact vengeance at the end of the movie. He like goes to the cops and he's like, we have to stay by this house where the gang lives or something really bad's going to happen. And so he's there with the cops and, and then the cops have been waiting there for hours and then the cops are like, you have to come with us now. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, no, I want to stay. And the cops are like, no, get in the car. It's like that. I'm not sure that you can do that because <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's nothing stopping him from just standing in the street all day. Right. I, yeah, the I cops well, can compel him. I don't know. They're like, you came here with us and we're being ordered to take you back. Right. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. That, 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 uh, that, that, that didn't make a whole lot of sense. Like I said, greater than the sum of its parts, this movie. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, yeah, I, I think that covers all I had to talk about with Gran Torino. Yeah, I, I think so, too. I think it's a it's an interesting product of its time. And uh, it's, you know, I feel like it's a kind of movie that doesn't get made a ton anymore. There's something that feels sort of, I don't know, uh, unique to its era about it, which I guess yeah. is what I just said. Anyway. Yeah. Um, so let's, let's move on to a different movie then, which is the one I picked, which is Sicario from Obama's second term in 2015, uh, directed by Denny Villeneuve. I don't really know how to pronounce his last name. Written by Taylor Sheridan, starring Emily Blunt, Benicio Del Toro, Josh Brolin, and Victor Garber, and Daniel Kaluuya in a, prost, a pre-get out role, excuse me. So Sicario is the story of this FBI agent played by Emily Blunt, who is on, like, a kidnapping response team and kind of stumbles onto this house in Arizona that is being used by the cartel to store, the Mexican drug cartels to store dead bodies. And it attracts the attention of the shadowy figure, these two shadowy figures, really, played by Josh Brolin and Benicio Del Toro, who are maybe CIA agents who uh, want to use her to help track down uh, the the heads of the cartels. Um, but but not just by operating inside of Arizona and the United States, but by actually going into Mexico pretty much illegally and using her to try and draw out the sort of like boss of the bosses of the Sonora cartel. And it turns out Benito del Toro has sort of like this very specific like revenge motivation to, to go and find this guy. And it's about her kind of, struggling against what she views as a illegal and unethical operation against the overwhelming power of the American intelligence and military and law enforcement community, basically. Yeah, it's a good Obama second term movie. It is. What what are your thoughts on this movie? Yeah, so just as a movie, uh, you and I watched this during quarantine because we went on that Villeneuve streak. Mm. The first, like, third of this movie might be, like, my favorite part from any movie in history. It's so good. It is. Yeah. It's, like, a, the shots of when they're, like, entering Mexico and how, like, tense it is without being, like, cluttered. Mm-hmm. And they're, like, sitting at the border checkpoint. Um, and, like, all the cars are, like, rolling in line. It's so it's so awesome. And there's all these, like, overhead shots of, like, the border and the border wall and the cities on both sides. This is a really good movie if you just like, you know, movies. Um, um, I think this is like a really good uh, pick for Obama, though, Mike. Why? Why did you? Why did you choose it? So I I I chose it, and my initial thought was that um, you have it's basically what I just said, right? Is you have this uh, young person who who is 
you know, a member of the establishment, basically, but is trying to push back against what she thinks are its abuses. But I think it actually kind of goes a little deeper than that. Like, you know, she is, I think, I don't think it's an accident that she and Daniel Kaluuya are like the only, not the only, but pretty much the only uh, woman and uh, black person in this movie who have speaking roles. And well, most of their superiors and fellow agents are all white. Indeed. This is actually our first movie we've covered with a female lead. Oh, wow. I did not think about that. Yeah. Uh, huh. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I chose it because so kind of alluding to what not alluding, but calling back to what we were talking about before is that, you know, Obama was viewed as this agent of change, right? He was going to get us out of the wars in the Middle East. He was going to revitalize our economy. He was going to insure everybody. He was going to create a more equitable society. He was going to bring world peace. He was like given the Nobel Peace Prize just for being a nice guy, basically, right? Before he actually accomplished anything. <laughs> right. And I, 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 I view sort of like Emily Blunt and Daniel Kaluuya's characters, specifically Emily Blunt, in, in a lot of ways as like Obama metaphors, right? Like oh, Emily Blunt is portrayed as sort of like the like a bright, up-and-coming young FBI agent, and there's this group of people who see her as useful, and think that she can help lead this operation, but she quickly realizes that what they're doing is illegal, right? They are bringing, they, they are they are running these illegal raids into Mexico to uh, illegally abduct cartel members, and then they're also like literally like waterboard, like there's literal enhanced interrogation technique scenes in this, right? Right. Um, and so I, I think that starts off sitting up where it's like this is what Obama was up against, right? If 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 you really thought that he wanted to be this agent of change and to sort of like you know create this softer, gentler America. There was already this built-in, you know, dare I say, deep state that was, <laughs> you know, already behaving in a pretty illegal and unethical way, and he had a lot to contend with there. And I just imagine, like, sort of like a lot of this movie is Emily Blunt, like, slowly learning what is actually happening, and you can just imagine coming into office and Obama getting these security briefings and slowly learning what is actually happening, like, in the Middle East and in Mexico and stuff. But what what I think is sort of like the the coup de grace, if you will, for looking at this as an Obama movie, is that it is, is towards the end. So it turns out um, this whole operation is basically just a way to get Benicio Del Toro, who works for the Medellin cartel slash the CIA, to assassinate the head of the Sonora cartel and his family because the head of the Sonora cartel ordered the beheading of his wife and the acid burning of his daughter. And at the end, and, and, and Emily Blunt's, like, trying to stop this. She literally points her gun at him. He, he, she, 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 he shoots her in, the, in like, the bulletproof vest to make sure it doesn't happen. And at the end of the movie, he, he brings her a piece of paper that's like, you have to sign this and say what we did was, like, all by the book. And she's like, I can't do that. I can't do that. Eventually, she does it. But as he's leaving her apartment, she takes out a gun, points it at him. And he's kind of like, yeah, fine. Like, you know, kill me. Like, he doesn't literally say that, but he basically offers himself up. And she puts the gun away. And I think that you can read that as basically like maybe Obama did have a chance to change some things. Maybe he did have a chance to affect the actual change and, and create a more peaceful world. But at some point, it's just so overwhelming and he gave into it. Right. Like he mm -hmm. never actually made the change he said he was going to. And I think if you're like a Obama skeptical person, like this is like the perfect movie about that. Right. About yeah. him not being able or perhaps even being unwilling to make those changes. Yeah. Well, so. To be clear, at, at the end in his apartment, he forces her, like, at yes. gunpoint to sign. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah, so I, I, I think 
you know, Emily Blunt's character, uh, Kate, uh, Mace, Macer, she, yeah. you know, she kind of represents, I mean, they introduce this kind of early on, right? Is she, she represents kind of government competence, but like way over its head. It's like, mm-hmm. I, I don't think anyone would describe Obama as like incompetent, right? Right. Um, and I picked up kind of what you did, where it's like Emily Blunt and, or Kate Mace, Kate Macer is kind of, it, Yes, she could stand in for Obama, right? Mm-hmm. But I, I, you do very much get to read that the Obama administration was in over its head when it came in, which is understandable. I mean, he is, he came in with very little experience. Admit it or not, it is just simply true, right? Mm-hmm. It is. Um, yes. I, I, the, the reason I think this is like a great movie for Obama too is, you know, I, I think of Obama and his legacy, uh, especially is just kind of, failing to expunge the sins of Bush. It's like Obama mm-hmm. was not necessarily like bad or wrong. It's more that he, he failed to fully expunge what happened. Uh, and in fact, you know, like this movie emphasizes, it's uh, very much the still bu- the, the same Bush era techniques are still in place, right? The literal waterboarding, these cross border measures, the, the militarization of police and, you know, the DEA, and odd operations on the U.S. border. And like I said at the beginning, like just how Obama deported so many people. It's like n- none of these scream, you know, Democrat to me. Right. Yeah. <laughs> they yeah. scream. The problem is like some of these were conscious choices by Obama. Obama had mm-hmm. many points in which he could have said, OK, I don't want to do this anymore. Right. Um, which is not to say Obama was torturing people. That's mm. th- that I. <laughs> My understanding is the Bush administration was the one doing that and not so much Obama. But, you know, I think we'd all be a little naive to think that the Obama administration was not doing shady stuff. Yeah. Well, uh, it, there, especially there's not li- on U.S. soil. Yeah. There's a scene where, where Kate Macer is like complaining to her superiors about what's going on. And the guy is basically like, look, these are decisions that are made by people who are elected, not appointed. Right. right? Like he, it is, it is almost literally implicating like Obama in, in this kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, so yeah. But I mean, if you want to like, <laughs> if you want to make it even broader than that, right? Is, is I, I think of the Bush, the Bush era, like you said, is very reactionary, but I think of the Obama era as kind of the last era of, American superiority in a way where it's it's I think under the Obama era, we realized it's like, okay the world is now actually smarter than we think it is. American exceptionalism is on the decline. Uh, And we we can say, you know, I I like America. I live here. I think it's a good country. I vote. But I don't see how you can't admit that America isn't as powerful as it was 20 years ago. Right. Mm -hmm. And that very clearly manifested in the Obama years. And you know, at one point, Emily Blunt's character is, you know, just like so confused and just like crazed out of her mind about what's happening. And she literally like screams. She's like, what the fuck are we doing? Yeah. It's just the, the world has become so me- this movie is all about gray areas mm-hmm. and it's just become so messy. And nothing is ever as simple as like we. Yeah. Bush can declare war on terror all he wants. But it's now taken us, what, 20 years to figure out what that means and decide that we can't do it? Right, right. Yeah, yeah well, and that's, and that's the point, like, Josh Brolin tries to make about, like, the Medellin cartel, right? 
is that he's like, look, like there was a time, once upon a time, like basically one person controlled the flow of drugs into this country, mm-hmm. and but now it's it's more diffuse and it's that means it's harder to stamp out and harder to control, right? Like he's not arguing for like the war on drugs in the sense that he wants to like destroy the drug trade. He is like, no, we like he's like literally twenty percent of the population is like using the drugs that are imported. So right. we just have we we the only hope we have is containing it, and this is how we're going to do it, right? Or we could just end the war on drugs, but whatever. Mm. <sighs> um, the two themes, there, or there's kind of a theme in this movie also of there's like external efficiency versus internal efficiency that you know I kind of jotted down a bit about it. It's like you know the, the first third of this movie is really exciting because the the efficiency with which they like move into mexico i mean they they, <laughs> they cross the us to mexico border like that right yeah is they just like fly in with all these like suvs and it's super cool looking it's um, like basically a real time scene like is it meant to be real time I, I i think mostly there's a lot of yeah tracking shots and i mean they they do some waiting around for a while but it does That's feel true, yeah. very like second by second. Anyway, there, there's the external efficiency of the individual in this movie too, right? Is Benicio, Benicio del Toro at the end is his character just goes off and does exactly what he wants to do uh, because he's taken mm-hmm. advantage of everyone else. It, you could never get, <laughs> I mean, to be very broad, you could never get the UN to do that, right? Right, right. Um, or in fact, the entire team that he is on, right? He has to go off and just do this by himself. But that contrasts very strongly with kind of the middle third of the movie, which is all about, like, you know, can there be internal efficiency? And the answer is very clearly no, because, mm-hmm. you know, the climax of the first third is they're returning back into the United States and they're stuck waiting there and they get ambushed yeah. while waiting to go through border control. A very tense scene, very good scene. But, yeah, <laughs> yeah, the the Obama administration can project you know, competence and efficiency all at once, but it it took eight years to not even get it done. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, it, it is. It's, it's a very pessimistic movie. <laughs> it, it is. Um, to say the least. It, it, it is about basically just the, I think the natural thorniness of basically just law enforcement and geopolitics and then uh, sort of the... There, so there was this um, Vox article I read um, that it kind of was doing the rounds of Twitter recently, but it was written while Obama was president, and it was about uh, what they called Green Lanternism, which was this mm-hmm. idea that, like, well, if the president has the will to get something done, then he can get it done, right? Like, you know, if Obama really wanted to hammer home a, a, a public option to Obamacare, like, he could get it done. <laughs> but, like, that's that's clearly ridiculous, right? Like... And you see that argument still being made, right? Where it's like, well, you know, if Biden really wants, you know, infrastructure passed, then then he can get it. He just has to like do the right things to like mansion and cinema and all the Republicans and stuff like that. That's literally not how the Constitution works. But no, it isn't. But it's like it's like you think about like Guantanamo Bay, right? It's like you know, it's like well, if Obama really wanted to close Guantanamo Bay, he could just like do it, but he didn't do it, and. Either that's because there are forces so powerful against him that he couldn't do it, or because maybe he learned some things and saw some things and decided it was just easier to keep it open. You know, who knows uh, what actually happened there? Yeah. And I mean, and to kind of transition from what happens after Obama, it's like, like you said, the the ending scene, uh, she goes to shoot 
Benicio del Toro's character, and she can't. Like she doesn't want to go down to that level. Mm-hmm. Um, and he literally he says he says like quote you're not a wolf, and this is the mm-hmm. land of wolves now. And that yeah. feels very like. You know, at the end of Obama's era, you have Trump saying, like, Obama wasn't, like, man enough to do this. You mm-hmm. need, like, a man in the room who yeah. who can do this. And, yeah, the the problem is you would never elect someone like Benicio Del Toro or even, like, <laughs> Josh Brolin in this movie, like, as president, right? There's a reason that mm-hmm. these people are not usually presidents, and it's usually people like Emily Blunt's character. <laughs> yes, yes. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Any Anything else about Sicario, or, or have we sicario did uh that first third check it out people yeah it it is such a like smooth movie it is so it's he's just a really good visual director vinov or whatever his name is yeah um drone shots he really likes drone shots there's a lot of that in this movie so do i (laughs) there's a lot of him blade runner 2049 too all right so we watched Grant Turner watched Sicario. Lars, what conclusions can we draw about the Obama era through these films? I, I, I think, I mean, I think because we've now done it twice, right? It's, it's hard to talk about the Obama era without discussing both the administration before it and Obama's failures to expunge its sins and also mm-hmm. the administration that would overshadow it afterwards, right? Mm-hmm. Um Obama doesn't feel so much as like a changed president, uh, ironically, because that's something he very much campaigned on. Um, is he feels like a stuck president to me. And I and I, I remember taking a class on the presidency uh, uh, in college that, you know, categorized all these presidents by kind of their approach to the job. And, and it started like Obama was very like active, enthusiastic. Uh, and, and she was like, but. He's clearly not that anymore. He's he's become very active. He he likes to you know he he'll go out and he'll say his thing, but he he's clearly just become very passive. Is mm-hmm. he has resigned himself to being just stuck because for the last six years he kind of was, and uh, that I think Sicario <laughs> uh, stresses that a lot. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I I think that. Yeah, like stasis is what I think of when I think of Obama, right? Yeah. Um, and like, there's literally the scene in Sicario where Daniel Kaluuya's talking to Emily Blunt, and he's like, "You look like shit." Like, he's just yeah. like, "You look like you know, you you know, your hygiene's gone to shit, and like you you have like you know, you seem very depressed." And like, I feel like that's also like the last six years of Obama's right. Yeah, you know, like he went gray, and it just seemed like it took a lot out of him. Uh, yeah, but like you know, it, it is like the promise versus the the reality right i feel it's the um it's 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 uh, to to paraphrase sarah palin i believe it's it's the hopey changey part and then it's the how's that hopey changey stuff working out for you part right right <laughs> um so yeah like there was there were, and then it's like this kind of what it's like hard to you know we we talked um when we were talking about bush we were talking about at like the 2007 academy awards where the joke was that, like, thank God there's the movie about teen pregnancy to, like, lighten things up. Mm. Um, and, like, Juno, as opposed to all those other movies. Um, thing is, like, I, I, I've been listening to, like, a lot of music from, like, 2008, 2009 recently. And it's, like, there was, like, a sense of hope. Like, as much as there was a sense of despair before that, there was, like, a sense of hope, I would yeah. say. And then it slowly kind of, like, withered away, I feel. Um, yeah, so, yeah. Yes, I, I agree. I feel kind of bad because we 
you know, I, I, I generally give Obama the benefit of the doubt just because people did not like him. Like bad people, very evil people were really set against him and clearly like handicapped him early on in his term. And I think he is like a good person who just got stuck. But it does feel like we are pretty down on his legacy overall. Not so much as a person, but just like we said, he just got stuck. Yeah, it, it's I, I would not call it like a disaster by any means, but <laughs> he didn't it, start any new wars, though he tried. I mean, he kind of did. I mean, <laughs> would you consider Libya a new war? Yeah, I don't know. He, he, he I feel he 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 was not. It's like, was he affirmatively good? Well, he was not bad. Right. It's right. Like he was affirmatively not bad. Right. Um, and maybe that's the best you can really hope for in a president these days. <laughs> um, and on that note, <laughs> thank yeah. you for listening to Watching Maids. Uh, my name is Michael Levito. You can find me on Letterboxd at Amerimike and Twitter at Levito. Uh, I'm Lars Emerson. You can find me on Letterboxd at Lars Emerson. Uh, you can find this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can also find our new podcasts, uh, Pony Express and Political Express. Politics They're Express. Pol- excuse me. Pony Express and Politics Express. The two newest additions to the Post Rider Podcast Network. Also visit the Post Rider to read all of the things we write. Until next time, hope. It's the worst of things, but uh, thanks for listening. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking forward to this next episode. <laughs> oh, boy. As we discuss the films of Donald Trump's administration.